Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, I'm glad you're here today. I love the noise of fellowship. I don't even know if noise is the right word. That sounds negative, doesn't it? The the sounds, the sounds of fellowship are good. And uh, I want to invite you to come with me to James chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to jump over to Psalm 24 as well, but I'd like to talk about personal spiritual renewals. Anybody ever felt a little bit dry in the faith a little bit? Maybe you've gone through a period of time where it's been hard or you find that your direction has shifted a little bit away from the Lord and... Um, Maybe you need a moment of spiritual renewal. And I think this uh, uh, instruction that uh, James gives us is for us at every stage of life. If you're, a, if you're not a Christian yet, James 4 is great. If you're a Christian um, and you've not been walking with the Lord faithfully, James is great. If you just need to draw in a little bit closer, James 4 is great. So here's my message to us for all of us. James 4 is great. We're going to take a look at it. And uh, this talks about a little bit about how we go about personal uh, spiritual renewal. And it's important that we have times of renewal in our faith where we, we come back and we renew the covenant that we have with the Lord. And we understand that um, it's not renewing the covenant is not so much about getting saved again as it is redeclaring our allegiance to Him and our faithfulness in walking with Him. And uh, how to go about it. I must tell you that we're... We're dealing with a personal God. So the things that we're talking about today, you can't just go through steps mechanically with a person and expect to get good results. Anybody testify to that? Like uh, within relationships that you have, mechanical steps, uh, robotic steps without yielding really don't work with God. God is not a machine who operates by mechanical response. He's a person who knows us. And not only does he know us, uh, he knows when we really don't mean what we say. Come on, that's true, isn't it? Have anybody been to the altar? I, when you grow up in church like I did, you go to the altar a lot of times and you, 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 you say things that are not completely sincere. And God knows it. He's got our number. Uh, and so he doesn't operate by that kind of ma- machine response. He knows us. He knows when we don't mean what we say. He knows uh, what we're saying, what we're not saying when we say things like, God, I'll give you my life. But uh, what we're not saying is that, God, I'm also going to give you this particular aspect of my life that I really don't want to yield yet. Uh, he knows when we're putting on a show and when we're just going through the motions. And I hope that we'll be challenged by that thought that uh, when we worship God, that he he sees through all of the uh, the show if you want to call it that, and through the uh, spectacle to who we really are. And that's what he's concerned with. Uh, scripture tells us that God, uh, what God expects of us, and when we respond to him with all of our hearts, we will be in a condition where he can really bless us and use us the way that he wants to. Uh, would you agree with me that it's possible to live out the faith in less than uh, full potential for what it could be? Like there could be so much more. Not, not that God is holding anything back, but it may be that we are keeping God from uh, blessing us or using us a particular way because we're not 
fully surrendered to him because we're still hanging on to some kind of pet sin, or it may be uh, that we're just not really focused on on him. But uh, it's possible to live less than our potential in God. Um, he, he tells us what he expects of us, and when we respond to him with all of our hearts, we're going to be in that place where he can use us. Being redeemed can become uh, the fullness of what it's supposed to be. Now, let me talk about quickly here as we look at our passage uh, about how our world entices us to the temporal. Would you read with me in James chapter 4? Let's start at verse 1, and we'll come to a more focused part of our text in just a minute. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Uh, Let me pause here and just remind us, James is not writing to unbelievers so much as he's writing to the church. We know that in the introduction, that he's writing to Christians. Everybody with me on that? So these fights and quarrels that James is talking about, is they're things that are happening with Christians. And remember how he said something about the tongue, and he says, with the same tongue, you, you bless God and you curse men. This ought not to be, right? We're not supposed to live like that. And so he, he calls us on the ought word. It's not supposed to be that way. Okay, so reading on here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Do you, you desire... But you do not have, so you kill and you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, God knows what's going on in our motives, even when we're asking with different words. You adulterous people, verse 4, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor or grace here. That's the word. Shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So I was reading through this passage today, and actually as we're singing our worship songs, I thought, man, this compared to, we were singing some exuberant worship. Wasn't it wonderful? And uh, what I'm about ready to say uh, could have a tendency for us to take in a negative way. But I want to challenge you that any negative with God is a potential positive because even when he convicts us, it's always with the hope of restoration. Aren't you glad for that? That he, he, always, he only wounds to heal. That's what God's about. He's, he's working on us. And so if we find today a negativity from this message, and please don't get up and leave, but if we'll endure through this and we find a negativity here, there's hope. There's hope in it. And I want to make that clear from the beginning. So he's speaking here to a group of Christians that are, some of them are being influenced by the world. When he used the word kill here, you're probably a little bit shocked by that. He's probably using it more metaphorically in the sense that this is the thing that leads to murders. Like Jesus, when he says, if anyone has hated somebody or is angry, they've committed murder in their heart. And so he's dealing with the condition of the heart, and these people have been enticed by the world around them. Now, when we talk about world, we, we mean a few different things, and 
one particular thing that we know is that God loves the world, right? He loves the world. And what does it mean? It means means that God loves all the people of the world, and he has uh, sent Jesus to die in the place of them that they could be redeemed, that all the world could be redeemed. But there's also a system of the world that fights against God, that's inspired by the evil one, that's inspired by a collective of rebellion against God. And in that particular sense, the church is supposed to not go along with the world, not love the world in that way. We love the world in the sense of we want to see people saved. But we don't love the world in the sense of buying into its system. Okay, so there's a a call to some kind of difference here. Well, many times, and sometimes we don't realize it, is that as we come to faith, we're still battling with some worldly ideas. We're still, we may not even think, we may not even think of it as battling. They're still, they're still part of our decision-making process. They're still a significant part of our value system. And what God wants to do as we come to know his word more is he wants us to become less worldly in our thinking, less influenced by the system of rebellion, and more influenced by the spirit of the son. Okay? So this is what God is trying to do. But these believers in James haven't fully grasp that yet. So our world makes these enticements to the temporal, to the here and the now, and, and to doing things a certain way. There was a band back in the 90s. This is It seems like not that long ago, but if you're under 20, it seems like ages, I'm sure. But back in the 90s, there was this Christian band called Delirious, and they used to sing this song called Gravity. And one of the lines was, heaven is calling me, but gravity's pulling me. Heaven is calling me. In other words, there's this upward call towards God, but there's this downward pull of the gravity of the world. And we face that kind of tension in our lives. There's another group called Cademan's Call, and uh, they, they sing a song uh, called, I think it was called This World, and uh, their line was, this world has nothing for me, and this world has everything. All that I could want and nothing that I need. So you see, there's this tension that happens in lives, in the lives of Christians even, to be pulled by the world and its ways. And we probably feel it more than what we know. Like right now, you're probably not consciously thinking gravity is acting upon me. Anybody maybe thought about that the moment I mentioned gravity? But before that, honestly, was there anybody here thinking, boy, I sure am being sucked down towards this floor? Nobody is thinking that, and the reason for that is because we live in it and we become unconscious like a fish in water. If you want to know what water's like, don't ask a fish because that's their natural environment. And for us, I think there's a spiritual application of that, that there is the gravity of this world pulling on us, and it's been so persistent through our lives that we may not realize it all the time. Other times we do when we're trying to stretch higher. You know, when I was a, a teenager, in Kansas, I just I knew that like the standard of coolness was if you could dunk a basketball. And gravity, I never thought anything about until it's time to try to impress the girls. Gravity is pulling on me. It seems harsher than many other people because I can't get I can't seem to get up there, and I never did. If you can dunk, uh, kudos to you. So there's this pull, this downward pull. There's this idolatrous love for this life that James is talking about here. And it seems to me the primary challenge of faith 
It's not whether we can believe God for a miracle or not. I think there, that's an aspect of faith, but that I don't think is the primary struggle of faith. I think the primary struggle of faith is different than that. Faith is both, in the both Old and New Testaments, have to do with uh, which vision of life you believe enough to live. Do you believe God's version or do you believe the world's version? And so when God was dealing with Old Testament Israel, he was constantly having to call them back from the influence of the people around them. Are, are you with me on that? Like the, those, that Canaanite culture was so pervasive that it began to seep in to what Israel was doing. They didn't realize it. And so the prophets are continually calling, have faith in God. Trust that what he says is right is right. And what he says is wrong is wrong. What he says is true is true. And what he says is false is false. Trust him enough to buy into his vision of life and do things his way. But persistently, Israel, uh, they were called stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, because they wanted to go after the things of the world. And there's that perpetual idolatry that, that will, will tempt to pull us away from God. And I think that's the real challenge of faith, um, is to believe enough to live. Is, this, is it God's way or is it the world's way? Leslie Newbigin, uh, in a book... Uh, called Truth to Tell. He was an Anglican bishop and a missionary to India for many years. And uh, he talked about how we often think that the line between the world and God is something out there. Like, we're in here, this is a sanctified space, we think. And so, uh, out here, or right here is holy, out there is unholy. And we might think that about our, our homes. This is a holy house. And out there is the world, and it's messed up, and it's full of decay. And what Newbigin says is that uh, that line that exists uh, between living for this world and living for God is not something outside of us. Uh, it's something in here. He said the line runs right through the middle of each of us. We have a world of tensions calling, uh, who will you serve? And you know that you can't effectively serve both masters. Our allegiance will be shown in the decisions that we make and the things that we do. And we need renewal because that tension oftentimes wears us out, and there's times that we give in to it. There's times that we buy into the world's way of looking at things. If you haven't seen the connection here today, I wanted to just talk about, uh, from James chapter 4, this call to renewal. But it takes us back to the book of uh, Psalms, Psalm 24. And uh, if you haven't seen this connection before with James 4 and Psalm 24, I'd like you to notice a few elements here, and, and we'll look at it in more detail. But the call is, and I'm going to just read this Psalm 24, if you'd like to go there, excuse me, if you'd like to go there with me, you can, and let's take a look, and we'll come back to James and look at that in more detail. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice in that there is a call to a different kind of worldview. Who would the pagans said the world belongs to? The gods or... Maybe to us or the world's eternal and that we're all just little forces acting upon it and we're temporal and the world is eternal. Um, but here the psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's a, a challenge to a secular worldview. It says the world doesn't belong to God. It belongs to us or it just is and we belong to it or whatever. No, the world belongs to the Lord and everything in it and all who live in it. He goes on to say for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up uh, his soul or, or put his trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Psalm 24. So he mentions a few things. We'll take a look at a slide in just a moment related to this. But uh, he's asking the question, who will stand in his holy place? Who will come and stand and live in the presence of God? Now, there are people that think uh, Psalm 24 is uh, about God the King, and I think that's true. Psalm 24 is letting the king of glory come in and be central and be known and be large. And it's, it's calling us to shift away from selfish kind of thinking to God-centered thinking. I feel like that I've preached on this so much, you're probably tired of hearing it, but I think it's the call of the Christian life is God needs to be central. And we've got to consistently and continuously bring our lives into balance around that truth. That's the call is, okay, now you're trusting Jesus as Savior. Are you going to live with Jesus as central. And so Psalm 24 welcomes God as king, and some people think that it celebrates the day uh, and the way that David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Do you remember that? He went dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and he's like, these outer garments are getting in the way, and he casts those off, and he's dancing wildly. And uh, what uh, this psalm is telling us, make way, everyone. If you go on reading here in Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, uh, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So it's telling us here that there's some kind of an entrance into Jerusalem. And the thought is the Ark of the Covenant is coming. And I'd like you to know that the Ark of the Covenant is not God. It's symbolic of God's presence dwelling with his people. It's a tabernacle in miniature. Okay, And so as they're walking with the Ark of the Covenant and coming in, David is realizing that at this moment, God is going to become central to the nation of Israel. And he's also stating he's going to be central to my life. But for that to happen, some things need to take place. Gates, you need to lift up and make room for the king. Okay, doors you need to move out of the way so that the king can come in. Can you see the picture? The picture is a call to adjust life to allow room for the king. That's what Psalm 24 is about. And when uh, James is writing in James chapter 4, he's thinking about Psalm 24. And we know that because of the words that he uses. He's thinking about the fact that we need to stop being worldly. We need to stop being self-centered and we need to be God-centered. And so in verses 7 through 10 of chapter of Psalm 24, there are physical obstructions and are called to, to make way, to get the obstacles out of the way, both internal obstacles in the worshipers and external obstacles. Like uh, they could be material, they could be uh, maybe the condition of the worshipers themselves, but they're called to, to get these obstructions out of the way, make room. Swing wide gates, lift up uh, you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. So this is, uh, this is devotion to God. If there's no room for him, um, then renovations have to be made in our lives. Are you with me? Okay, this is Old Testament thought. If there's no room for God, then what needs to happen is we have the inspector, the Holy Spirit, come in and say, we need to make some renovations here. Okay. 
sorry, this is going a little far, but you're not to, you're not to code. You need to make some adjustments, right? We've got to make some room here uh, for the king of glory. And so some things have to be torn down, and some things have to be thrown out to make room for the king of glory. There are rigid structures that beg the question, what kind of life do we have, have we built that these things are standing in the way of the king of glory, whatever they are? Is it the Christian life or something else? I think of the rich young ruler here, um, the religious leaders, those who are invited to the banquet. Jesus said, go out and invite them to come in, and they begin to come back with excuses. Well, I'm, I got married, and, you know, there's a lot of requirements that, <laughs> that go with that, and so I can't make the banquet. And somebody else bought a piece of property, and somebody else brought, bought oxen, and they all came up with these really lame excuses about why to miss a banquet. And that's just what it was, that they had no room in their life for the king. They had no room in their life for the king. So I'd like you to consider those who've not made room, consider carefully the outcome of those who didn't make room and tremble at that. The story of the rich young ruler tells us that uh, it shows us first Jesus' ability to see through pretense and self-deception. The man who came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. He's, he's baiting him. I hope you know that. He's not saying the commandments will earn you eternal life. What he's doing is using the law as a schoolmaster to show him his need. The man says, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. And he says, really? Well, then go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the man went away sad because he had many possessions. Do you know what that shows us? It shows us he had an idol in his life. Which commandment is the commandment against idols? Which one? Of, in order, number one. This man said, I kept all the commandments. He couldn't even get past the first one. Do you see that? Jesus exposed the idol for what it was. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. He couldn't do it. Why? Because he had an idol in his life. There was no room for God in his life. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 24 or spiritual, I think spiritual waymaking. I think that's a great phrase, spiritual waymaking. We're making a way spiritually for God to come in and have his fullest possible way. You know, those who are qualified uh, have to remove blockages to God's presence, dirty hands, divided hearts, idols, empty kind of faith. Uh, and it talks about all those there, but we won't take time to look at those in detail because these are echoed in James. Uh, they will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. This is the kind of people who seek his presence, who seek his face. And face, you know, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is a, a metaphor for his presence. When you seek the face of God, you're seeking the presence of God. You're welcoming his presence. So what does generation mean? When, when uh, David writes, this is the generation of those who seek your face, he says, this is the kind of people. Here, it's kind. It has nothing to do with necessarily chronology. It has more to do with a kind, a distinguishing characteristic of a certain kind of people. The kind of people are like what he talks about, clean hands, a pure heart, not lifting up our souls to an idol, swearing by, uh, by what's false, and what's the significance of the God of Jacob? I thought this was fascinating because he refers to the God of Jacob. And what we see in the Bible is that in Exodus, it talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Okay? And then you get past Exodus, and you don't see that anymore until the New Testament. From that time on, the writers use a shorthand for it, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They just say simply, the God of Jacob. And that means the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your forefathers. This is calling Israel to recognize their genealogy and the true religion that they've walked in with God. And you remember that the call of Abraham was walk before me faithfully and be blameless. So how does this relate to James chapter 4? Let's uh, flip on over to James 4 if you haven't done that already. And take a look at some key verses here. He said in verse 7, submit yourself uh, then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. How many love that when you're just reading through the Bible? Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. All right. Let's talk about this uh, for a moment. This letter from James, of course, addressed to Christians, people who are scattered and trusting in Christ, though not perfectly. And they're living um, as Christians in places where there probably aren't a lot of Christians around, maybe maybe their church, maybe a few. But the culture at large is non-Christian. And so there's the influence of all of that. And there is a tendency when uh, we're away from the people of God that we could slip into old behaviors or behaviors that are like the world. And so he's giving them uh, a key for personal renewal. And the announcement of Jesus, you remember, was that the reign of God had really come, that people should live for him and trust in him. And even as they're, they're out in the world, they ought to treat Jesus as king, and they ought to tell other people that Jesus is king and convince them to obey Jesus too, because he is the proper king of the world. And so that's the challenge. And so when Christians don't live with Jesus as king of the world, we're undermining our own message. So what's the first call here? The first call is to submit. So I would challenge us that if we're going to walk with the Lord and we want to see personal renewal, the first step is submission to God. Submit means to order or arrange oneself under. That's what the Greek word means. If you you can't do this with every Greek word because you know how butterfly is it like a butterfly? You can't do that with every Greek word, but some of them you can, and this is one of those. It means to arrange beneath or re- arrange under. And so when we submit, we're arranging our life under someone. Are you with me? That's submission, to order, arrange ourselves under. And it, it kind of looks like this. You could put me there, but I think us is more appropriate, and it gets us a little bit away from that self-centered way of thinking. But you think of us, and then this would be, what life should look like if we're to diagram our practical living is that we bring our lives underneath God in terms of importance, in terms of who gets to command, who gets to determine what the priorities are of our life. God's the one who gets to do that and not us. I know that's not exciting because we all know what that means. We don't always get what we want, right? I know some of you are thinking of the song right now. You're thinking about Mick Jagger singing that. But it's true. We don't always get what we want. And when we're following God, the beautiful part of it is, is that he gives us what we need, which is more important. 
It's more important. So we bring our lives into submission to him. This is a truly freeing thing. We cannot live the way that we need to live for God until we've submitted to him. Jesus is Lord is the the primitive creed of the Christian church. He is Lord, not just Lord of the world. That's that's wonderful and abstract and out there and nebulous to us. But when we say he's Lord of me, that has practical consequences. It matters how I'm going to live, matters how I'm going to treat people, matters how I'm going to do business, matters how I'm going to live in my home. Matters what I'm going to how I'm going to relate to the whole world around us with Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so this is the question, are we arranging our lives underneath God or not? That's the first thing. And I think when we do this, I don't think you can get to any of the other steps if we don't do this one. Are you, you understand what I mean by that? Like this is the practical first step to living the Christian life is true submission. And I'm going to argue, I would argue from Matthew 7, 21, that you can't have Jesus as Savior if you don't have him as Lord. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of the Father. That's this, submitting to Jesus as Lord. I don't know that any of us do it perfectly, but this is the call. And a call of submission means, first of all, an attitude of submission, and then it means the practical outworkings of obedience. The second thing I want to mention here, and this is not just me, but Notice it says, submit yourselves to God, to God. And then the second one here is kind of like it, but it's in reverse. It's resist. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist is to actively oppose pressure or power. Actively oppose pressure or power. One writer used this word to describe rebelling against persuasive speech. Some of you might be doing that right now. I don't know if my speech is persuasive, but... You might be like, I'm, I'm not buying what that guy is selling. And, I, and so you're actively doing this resisting part. And, and some people do that against God. The Holy Spirit is the most persuasive of all. He's got our number. But we can resist the Holy Spirit. And we can hold him at bay because we don't want to respond to what he's saying. I think this is at least one form that the resistance takes, is refusing to be persuaded by the enticing advances of the enemy, resisting temptation. And so this diagram would look something like this. Okay, there's us, and then there's the devil. We got our shield up. Boom. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. Okay, so this is the, the call to resist, refusing to be persuaded, refusing or resisting temptation. Jesus would not be derailed from his mission, neither by the direct dealings with the devil. He takes him onto a high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world. You can have these if you bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll just give it to you. And he resisted that. Take this stone and turn it into bread. It's not God's way and it's not God's timing. And I'm not going to be obedient to the devil, okay, even if he's trying to quote scripture. He refuses that. He refuses uh, the temptation to bow down and worship and uh, throwing himself down, making a spectacle so that people would follow him. That would have been immediate crowds following Jesus. If he'd thrown himself down and angels caught him, that's the temptation. You don't have to go the hard way. You can have immediate popularity. You don't have to go the hard road. And he resisted it. But then he also had the 
the resistance to the indirect things that came from well-meaning but misguided Christians like Peter, who said, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. Right after he asked, he said, who do men say that I am? You're Christ, the son of the living God. Yes. Good job, son of Jonah. (laughs) Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. God did. And then he says, "Uh, I'm going to have to go to the cross. And then Peter says to him, never shall you have to go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, one thing was revealed by God, and in the very next moment, Peter got caught up in his own sentimentality and emotions. That can never happen, and it was satanically inspired. Jesus resisted that temptation to not have to go to the cross. This word is used, this word for resistance is used at times for people who resist God. This very same word. And at one time, we used to resist God, but since we're submitted to God, the same faculty, that mental faculty of resistance, is now redirected against the enemy. Are you with me? We, We all, because we're free moral agents, God has given us a freedom word. Anybody know what that is? What's our freedom word? No. We can say no, right? We can say no. He's given us the freedom to be able to say no. So in the past, we said no to God. But now that we're following God and submitted to him, we say no to the devil and his enticements. It's that same word. Now that we're submitted to God, we use that same faculty to resist the devil, insisting on doing um, what's right. Remember uh, Paul, before he was converted, uh, Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road and it seems that God was dealing with him at one time in a very strong way. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the prod. You know what the prod is? I grew up in Kansas, but not on a farm. But later on, I discovered that one of the ways that people move cattle is they have a prod. And they poke it in the bottom, and that cow moves. It's amazing technology. Now they have electric ones. Okay, so what this is saying is Saul, and they had these, even in ancient, not the electric ones, but the, these long sticks with like a copper end on it. It was really sharp. They poked it in the bottom, and the cow would move. And so Jesus, can you believe this? Jesus talks about this. He says, Saul, it's hard for you, it's hard for you to kick against the prod. In other words, God said, I'm prodding you. Jesus is saying, I'm prodding you, but you're kicking against it. Why don't you just surrender and go my way? So when we submit to God, then who do we resist? We have to resist the devil. All right, let's go to the next one here. And so we can finish this sometime before evening. Resist the devil. That's not the next one. This is the next one. Come near. This is to approach in proximity and spiritually. Like There's nowhere you can go on earth to get closer to God. I would argue, even if you went to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you can't get closer to God than you already are if you're a Christian. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside you. The presence of God is with you now. You might feel a sense of euphoria and a sense of awe, but practically speaking, you're not any closer to God than you are right now in God's presence, because He's everywhere present. Aren't you thankful for that? So we don't have to go to a place. In fact, you can't go to a place might say, oh, I've come to church to get closer to God. You came to church to be challenged, and God is beckoning you every moment. 
That's different. So come near here is to approach in a kind of spiritual proximity. In terms of our status, we've already been brought near by Jesus. So this is not talking about getting saved uh, necessarily. In Ephesians 2.13, that you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the approach is still, uh, even after we're saved, the approach is still the way of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, that we continue to draw near through the blood of Christ. But it requires us to act on a practical level, positionally or practically, or excuse me, positionally or status-wise, it's true that if you're in Christ, you're, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. But here this is talking about the continuation of that. Okay, so notice these steps, submission to God, resistance to the devil. You have this kind of swing back and forth. Uh, submission to God, resistance to the devil, drawing near to God. See, it's come back again to talk about that that approach, coming near to God. Um, one of uh, the Bible handbooks on this says it's that this word means to meet and maintain a close personal relationship with God, and therefore the 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 clause may be rendered, come to meet God, continue to come to meet God. So there's a promise in this that's conditional. If you'll draw near to God, then what? He'll draw near to you. Here's our diagram. I knew you were waiting for this. Okay, there's us, God. We draw near to him. And I want to pause here for a moment because probably some are thinking this. Doesn't God show provenient grace where he preempts our approach. Yes, he does. That's already been stated. That before we ever sought him, before we ever looked his way, he was already looking our way and pursuing us. He was the God who already had approached and come near, right? That's true. We love him because he first loved us. So you can never get out ahead of God and be the pursuer in one sense. Do you understand what I mean by that? That he's always, he's always done the first thing. But this is talking about impractical Christian living. Because God has made that approach, draw near to him. And in Hosea chapter 12, and I, I don't know if I have the verse written down here, it talks about uh, even God speaking to Israel. If you will turn and come close to God, he will come close to you. So this is a promise that's conditional. It's not talking about earning salvation. This is talking about the ongoing relationship with God which can be as close to God as we will allow. So it's not talking about a, approaching him on our terms, but on his terms. Come close to God, it says in the NLT. I think here of Zacchaeus, who uh, Jesus was coming his way already. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man, if you know the song. And a wee little man was he. And so he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And then the Lord would begin to pass his way. And uh, Zacchaeus, of course, climbed the tree to see Jesus. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. Remember that? That was one of the, one of the first songs I learned when I was a little kid. Uh, I didn't sing it perfectly or have the lyrics perfect. But the, the story is this, is that he pursued a vision of Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to draw close. And Jesus says, you're drawing close. You're, you're trying I'm coming to your house. And then it changed when Jesus came to his house. He said, Lord, if I've defrauded anybody, then I will pay them up to four times what I've taken. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come to this house today. 
this man, God's doing something in him. He wanted to see Jesus. And I would encourage you, if you want to be close to God, pursue him. And I don't mean you're running after somebody who's running away. You're, it's, it's like that picture of two people running towards each other on the beach. God wants to be with you. Do you want to be with him? Sometimes in our Christian life, I think we make God, God chase us. And it ought not be that way. Finally here, and this is probably our lion's share, and it, won't, it shouldn't take very long, but repent. You wanted to hear that, didn't you, today? This, uh, this word's not in the passage, but if you look through here, it says, submit yourselves to, uh, then to God. Verse 7, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Okay, so here uh, I wanted to point out this, uh, the word repents not used in James at all. But verse 8 and 9 is maybe the best explanation of repentance we have in the Bible. It's to change one's life because of a change of thought and attitude. So to change one's mind and therefore life. It's a, a change here that leads to a change here. Where our feet go, what our hands do, what our eyes see are all affected by the change of mind that's taken place. So this is a great explanation to change one's life and to change uh, our thought. It's turning away from sin and turning towards God. So here's what this would look like, us turning away from sin and turning to God. Notice, uh, wash your hands. This is a word picture for cleansing from evil deeds. Okay, You can't wash sin away from you. Remember Lady Macbeth, she couldn't scrub the blood off of her hands. We cannot rid ourselves of guilt. Only Jesus can do that. That's not what this is talking about. When it says, wash your hands, you sinners, it means to cease doing sinful deeds. This is talking about the exterior things that we do. Like if you're stealing, to stop stealing. Remember, if, any, if you, you who stole, steal no more, but rather work with your hands in order to have to give to those who are in need. So it's, it's changing of external behavior. Washing the hands means to cease doing evil things with our lives. Are you with me? The hands are kind of the figure for what we do. Okay. Wash your hands. And then it says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This isn't the same thing as cleansing our hearts from sin. This is a very specific thing in mind. And it goes back to Psalm 24. Who can ascend to the hill, hill of the Lord? Who can stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then it goes on to explain what that means. Who does not lift up their souls to an idol or swear by what's false. What a pure heart means is not having a heart that's necessarily tainted by sin or free from that, but it's having a heart that's singularly devoted to God. That's a pure heart. We use pure in this way. All the time. Uh, if you want good orange juice, you get the 100% pure Florida orange juice. It's pure. What does that mean? It means there's not banana juice. The raspberries haven't gotten in there. It's orange juice. It's pure. It's singular. And that's what he's calling us to be here is to purify your hearts because he goes on to say here, you double-minded. That means that some of these Christians have been in two minds at the same time. They've been living a little bit for God and a little bit for the world. They've been thinking, I'm going to go this particular way. And maybe it's doubt. I can trust God. I can't trust God. And they're back and forth. And it's saying, get a singular, purified mind. Okay?
purify your hearts, you double-minded. So this, again, isn't removing the guilt of past sin. This is saying my singular focus is going to be God. If you want spiritual renewal, we have to begin to simplify. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean you get cut off all of the relationships and go into a monastery and just seek God all day long. What it means is that we make him the prime focus of our lives. We stop doing things that we know displease him. Then it says some real negative stuff here. Change your laughter to mourning. Your joy to gloom. Weep, wail, and mourn. Real uplifting, isn't it? This isn't talking about a continual state of being like this. It's talking about the appropriate response of sorrow for past sins. So it implies that a Christian can be happy in their sins. Listen to me. Why would, why would James say, Christian, stop being happy and be sad? Because you're sinful. Not every Christian is, fits this category, but this is true of some Christians that are happy in their sin. We thought, man, that would be impossible because the Holy Spirit would be all over us. Yes, but we can also learn to ignore that voice. And so it's possible to be happy. And he's telling us the appropriate response of true remorse for sins. This ought to be the result. It isn't always, but sometimes we need to be reminded that Christians can be happy in their sins, and we, some, we shouldn't be. There's a godly sorrow which leads to repentance. So James is teaching us the appropriate response. And it might feel inauthentic at first, but then if we l- learn to let it settle in, uh, it, can be, it can become more normal and more automatic. I wanted to tell you that uh, when I was in second grade, I think it was second grade, first or second grade, I can't remember which, but um, I was, uh, my mom was helping me through some spelling words, and uh, she got up to go to the other room for something. And a friend of mine at school, my Christian school, had recently taught me a bad word. Okay. So she got up, my mom got up out of the room and left the room, and I'm practicing my spelling words, and um, I wrote my new word down on the paper. (laughs) To impress her with how streetwise I was, had become, and so I wrote it exactly as I learned to spell it, hoping that she would see it. And I'm going to tell you, I have no problem remembering how to spell that word. I had no problem back then, and I still remember how to spell it (laughs) from learning it back then. Um, She saw it when she came back. She saw it, and she let out this gasp. (gasps) Where did you learn that? I want to tell you, I was proud of myself that I knew how to spell a bad word. (laughs) But when my mom responded like that, shame settled in. And I realized my appropriate response, she said, where did you learn that naughty word? She liked to say naughty. Where did you learn that naughty word? (laughs) And I said, somebody at school told me and deflected a little bit. But I felt so, I still feel a little bit ashamed when I think about that to this day, even though it's a little bit funny too. My pride turned to shame, and I was taught how I should feel about that. And the Holy Spirit can teach us how to feel about that. I'm sorry I had one more, but let's cruise through this, and you'll be glad we did. Um, here's, here's the comparison, and we talked about that. Humble. 
to be or become low in attitude. Humble means to lower ourselves, okay, to lower ourselves. And that's uh, like at the simple. And notice this is us, and this is us in relationship to God. Humble yourself before God. We're making ourselves lower. And then the Bible promises that he will lift us up in due time. And the arrow should continue on up there. He will lift us up in due times. This is to become low in attitude. For James, this is central. Six times he mentions his word in his little letter of humble or humility. The concept is there beyond that. Verse uh, Chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud. His opposition, by the way, is not just feelings of antagonism where he doesn't feel very good about it, the fact that you're proud. No, when it says he opposes the proud, it's talking more than just feelings of antagonism, but he takes action against the proud. And he does that against Christians. He'll take action against your pride. He'll love you, but he'll bring us down a notch if he needs to. Are you with me on that? Don't say yes too loud. He might hear you. And you might get on his program. You're already there. You're already there if you have pride. He wants to remove pride from our lives. Um, and so he, we can see this all through Scripture. I don't have time this morning to lay all that out, but you can see it in the Gospels. You can see it through the Old Testament that God wants us to be humble. And he says that if we'll come before him humbly, then he'll exalt us. And the word that's used for exalt here is bringing from a low position and raising to a place of glory. And he'll do, he'll do that for us if we'll humble ourselves. You might feel like, man, I'm not doing well in my walk with the Lord. Have you stopped for a moment and, and thought, am I walking in pride? In the Old Testament, you'll often see this lifted up. The setting is to place at the king's table, and it's to, to dine among the princes. You see this over and over again. Uh, one place, um, David writes, he's the glory and the lifter of my head. It's to put his hand down on the chin of somebody who's lying in the dust and lift them up and say, come dine at my table with the kings. He will do that, but he won't do that for the proud. He won't do it for those that think that they deserve the seat. Remember, Jesus even said, if you go to a house, don't sit in the best seat because you might get kicked down uh, the row. But go sit in the least seat and let the owner of the home, promote you. It's God's call for us is to humble ourselves in that way. This morning, uh, I, I want to remind us one more verse, and we'll uh, conclude here. Uh, Micah chapter 6, 8. He's shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly. He wants us to be humble before him. What I didn't want to do today as we looked at these passages is to create a new legalism where we with little heart proceed through these steps and expect a response on our terms. It can't be that way. These instructions are to restore us to spiritual intimacy with God. If we've been away or if we've been half-hearted or if we just desire to pursue him more, these steps are appropriate for people at every level. Okay. We shouldn't expect that every challenge of the Christian life will go away if we follow these things, like submitting to God and resisting the devil. You're still going to have to pay your taxes, right? And you still might battle illness, and you still might at times uh, find that the kids don't behave and all of that. So we can't expect that everything's just going to go away. But God deals with 
And, and God deals with his people in the midst of years. I love that phrase, that he does it in the midst of years. It means in the middle of life. God deals with us, and he loves us, and he works through that for his glory. So these verses are relevant to us as long as we live in these bodies. Spiritual maintenance is needed. And all of these actions that we're called to here are acts that we do with ongoing effect. The, the tense of the, the verb, the verbs of what God's calling us to do, like submit and to humble and to wash, is something that we undertake and then we try to live in the ongoing effects of that. So be submitted to God and live submitted to God would be the sense of that. And that means that we be in continual submission. We continue to resist the devil. We wash our hands, and having washed them from sin, don't go back to that sin. Repent. Um, what's going on here is a continual attitude towards sin where we've changed our mind, having humbled ourselves, remain humble. And here's the effect of each of these. A promise that if you do these things now, then other things will happen. If you submit to God and resist, what's going to happen? The devil's going to flee from you. Okay? And if you come near to God, something's going to happen. He'll come near to you. And if you humble yourselves, what will God do? He'll lift you up. So what I see here is a promise of a way available for every Christian to live more closely with God, to live a renewed life with him, to live a better uh, a life, a little further from evil with expectance, uh, expectancy of glory. Now, if you're going through a dry spell, that doesn't necessarily mean there's sin in your life or that your priorities are wrong. Sometimes we just go through those things. And sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it can be a physical thing. Um, and so I just, I've come to terms with the fact that it's not always a spiritual thing. Sometimes we just need more sleep. Okay? Okay, if you checked all those things off and you're going, but I know there's something in my life that's not right. We could deal with that today. You can be forgiven of that today. This isn't a message to pour condemnation on our head. The hope is this. You'll draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. If you confess your sins to him, he'll forgive you. If you stop doing those things, you can live in greater purposes and better life. That's the promise of God today, and I think it's going to lead to spiritual renewal if we take it seriously. I just want to ask one question. Do you want to be closer to God? Do you want to be closer to God? Okay, why don't we stand? Our worship team's coming to lead us in a song or two, and then we'll be on our way. But I don't want to do that without giving an opportunity for us to respond. Maybe you want to come to the altar, and you'd like to say, Lord, I'm washing my hands of this sin. I'm purifying my heart. I'm getting rid of the the idols that are collecting there. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, I just want more of you. I don't know of any sin that I've committed right now, but I want more of you. And you need to to say that to him and, and realize that your life needs to be driven by that one desire and one hunger. And maybe there's someone here that you've not made a commitment to follow Jesus with your heart and your life. And he's, he's given his life for you. He's died for you. The proper response is to give our lives to him and to say yes to him. And you can do that simply by saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, what you have, I want. Who you are, I want to know. And if you'll put your trust in Christ on the basis of his death and resurrection, 
then he will forgive you of your sins and today begin covenant relationship with you. And that can happen right now. Be merciful to me, God, a sinner. Amen. These altars are open. Please come. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.